Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program is recorded in front of our live community audience at Hallowed Missionary Baptist Church in Milwaukee. This March 2020 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation titled Pancreatic Cancer, Striving for Survival. Our guest presenter is Dr. Susan Tsai, Associate Professor, Department of Surgery, Division of Surgical Oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Here now is Dr. Susan Tsai. guys so much for having me. I've actually been looking forward to this, so I'm really excited to be here. So I had a little outline about what we're going to talk about. One is just some basic background information on what the pancreas does, how common it is to see pancreas cancer, and then a little bit about the treatment of it, and specifically kind of the things that we're doing at the medical college. What might be helpful to me is just how many people know someone who's had pancreas cancer? Wow, that is a lot of people. So when you look at all the cancers in the United States, the most common cancer by far is lung cancer because there's a lot of smoking and it happens in men and women. It's very common. After that, it's breast or colon cancer or prostate cancer. So those are the top four in terms of the numbers of new cancers every year. Pancreas cancer is way down on that list. It's like number 9, number 10, number 11. It's not very common. There's only 40,000 cases of pancreas cancer a year, 40 to 50,000. For comparison, colon cancer is 250,000. So it's five times more common to have colon cancer than pancreas cancer. But pancreas cancer, as I think probably a lot of people in this room have experienced, it's pretty deadly. So when you get it, you oftentimes will die from it. Unlike colon cancer, where oftentimes people can get colon cancer and then they'll live a very long and happy life still afterwards. With pancreas cancer, it's, it's pretty deadly. So the mortality from pancreas cancer is quite high. In 2030, they estimate that even though pancreas cancer is maybe the ninth or 10th most common cancer in the United States, by 2030, it's gonna be the second leading cause of cancer death. The reason why that is, is because for all these other cancers that we talked about that are much more common, there's really good screening mechanisms for them now. Women get mammograms, men get prostate exams, everybody gets a colonoscopy, we get lung cancer screening for people who are smoking, so there's a lot of ways to detect cancer early for all the other more common diseases, but not for pancreas cancer. And it's unlikely that they'll develop a screening test for pancreas cancer in the future just because it's not a very common disease. So they'd have to test a lot, a lot of people just to find one or two. So it's not very cost effective. And I'll come back to that later about how we can do screening for pancreas cancer. We do it in really high risk communities. When we talk about risk factors, and you may or may not know this, but African Americans actually have a much higher risk of pancreas cancer than a lot of other races. So they have the highest rates of pancreatic cancer per kind of ethnicity and race. And then Asian Americans are on the other spectrum. But how many people kind of knew that already, that African Americans were at, yep, at high risk for pancreas cancer? Okay. The other thing is men are more likely to have pancreas cancer than women, slightly more. 
And then when we find pancreas cancer, it usually occurs, you know, the average age is around 72, okay? So it comes on pretty late, and it comes on when people are just in the kind of their prime of their lives. You know, they're just retiring, they're ready to settle into their nest egg, and, and they get this news that they have pancreas cancer. So it can be quite devastating. So a little bit about the background. And this is actually perfect because you're all eating, so I can kind of talk you through how the spaghetti is getting down to your pancreas. <laughs> so when you eat food, food goes into your mouth, it goes down your esophagus, into your stomach, and all your stomach is doing is mushing things into smaller pieces so that everything's a little bit smaller as it gets into your small intestine. That's all the stomach does. It's just a mechanical grinder. Once the food gets into the small intestine, that's where the magic happens. That's where all the digestion actually really occurs. And so for that to happen, once food gets into your small intestine, it gets bile from your liver and it gets pancreas juices from your pancreas. Those two essential juices mix up with all the food and then you can digest proteins, carbohydrates, fats, all that stuff can happen downstream. So the pancreas is really situated right at the start of the intestines. And there's different parts to the pancreas. So the part of the pancreas that's attached to the intestines, we call that the head of the pancreas. And then the part of the pancreas that's sitting right over your aorta and some big blood vessels, we call that the body of the pancreas. And then the tail of the pancreas, which is that skinny little part on the end here, is over here by your spleen. So the head, the body, and the tail. The problem with kind of finding pancreas cancer is unlike breast cancer where you can feel a lump Colon cancer, sometimes you have like a bloody bowel movement or something else, you know, tips you off that there's something going on. Lung cancer, maybe you get a cough, something else. With pancreas cancer, there's not a lot of symptoms at all because it's hidden way in the back of your body. So it's not easy to feel. So if you were going to push on your belly right now, there's no way you could feel the pancreas. No way, no how. Um, so we use a lot of imaging to kind of see what's going on with the pancreas. And when people develop symptoms, they're really kind of vague. They just say, gosh, I, I'm losing weight and I don't feel really well, but that could be COVID-19 or <laughs> whatever it is, right? So it's not super specific. The one thing that is very, very specific, and if you can take anything away from tonight, this is what I would say is the most important thing, is if you have diabetes and your diabetes is getting worse and you're losing weight, that is pancreas cancer until proven otherwise. So just kind of remember that. Because you, you know when you go to your doctor and they say, oh, your blood sugars have been a little high, you've been eating too much cake and ice cream and you need to cut back a little bit. So when your weight goes up, your blood sugars go up, and they tell you what, exercise, diet, your weight goes down, your blood sugars go down, right? So they move together. So when they're moving in opposite directions, there's a problem. When your blood sugars are going up but your weight is going down, that's not normal. So that's the most classic sign of pancreas cancer is that. So if you talk to your neighbor and they say, gosh, I'm just losing weight and my blood sugars are all crazy, I'm having to give myself extra insulin, tell them to go talk to their doctor, okay? That's the number one thing for tonight. So I have a really good friend here, Mona Sino. Mona knows I can talk about pancreas cancer forever. You guys should have brought your sleeping bags. We just <laughs> cuddled together here tonight. You didn't realize you're not going home. <laughs> All right. So do you guys have any questions? Yes. If you were diabetic and you losing weight, 
Let me just clarify. So if you're a diabetic and you're losing weight, but your blood sugars are getting worse, going up, going up, yeah. So all of a sudden your blood sugar is 200, 300, 400, and you're losing weight, that's not normal. Come find me. I have my cards over here. You can just pass them out. Um, but that's not normal. Because really, if you gain weight and your blood sugars will go up, but if you lose weight, you know, your, your doctor's always saying diet control diabetes. You got to just cut back, do some more exercise, lose some weight, and your blood sugars will go down. That's normal because everything usually goes in the same direction. But if it goes in opposite directions, that's not normal. A lot of people have diabetes in the United States. They don't have pancreas cancer. It's only those people who are getting worsening diabetes and they're losing weight. The one thing about pancreas cancer, too, the diabetes is actually caused by the cancer in a lot of people. So when people are diagnosed with pancreas cancer and they have diabetes, usually that diabetes hasn't been around for 10 years. It's usually diagnosed within two years. Yeah, they actually think that the cancer is making something to make you have diabetes. And in fact, when we operate on people sometimes and we take out the cancer, the diabetes actually goes away. So it's not uncommon that we see people who are newly diagnosed and the diabetes really is just caused by the cancer. And we see that, again, if we start treating them and their treatments are working well, their blood sugars are coming down, that's also a good sign for us too. Okay, I have a couple curves here. These are what we call survival curves. The x-axis is time and the y-axis is how many people are still alive. And this is the series out of Johns Hopkins and Memorial Sloan Kettering. So these are two very famous cancer centers in the United States. I actually trained at Johns Hopkins. They're known for having done some of the most pancreas cancer in the world. So they see a lot of volume. And these were their survival curves, meaning if you looked at these curves and you said, if we took 100 people and we took the average, how long did people live when they had surgery for pancreas cancer? So first of all, we only do surgery for pancreas cancer if it's only in one place. So if it's spread everywhere, there's no point in doing surgery, as you would know, for, for cancer. But if it's one place and we take it out, take the only thing out we can see, the average survival in this initial one is 18 months, not even two years. And then in this next one, this is the series over 30 years. So if you see those three curves there, every curve is 10 years. So that over 30 years, they made no progress in terms of how long people would live after surgery. It's about 24 months. And so that makes you wonder, if we're operating on people and we're taking out the only cancer that we know of and people only live two years, what's going wrong? And so I like to think about this analogy with the iceberg. So sometimes the cancer that we see on the scan is really just the tip of the iceberg. And it's the cancer that we can't see that's invisible to us and in invisible to you, know, you all, that's really the problem. And so we've kind of revolutionized how we think about cancer so that we actually try and treat the whole iceberg, not just what we can see. We don't usually go to surgery first anymore just to take out what we can see. It's important to kind of shrink everything down if we can. Okay, so that's kind of the concept. So I think people start to think that there's kind of no hope for pancreas cancer. When you see survival curves like this, you know you're dealing with something really serious. But I think people don't realize that there are people who survive pancreas cancer, and they actually can live really amazing lives. 
And what's great is that once they've kind of been through it, they really understand how precious life is mm -hmm. and they want to share you know, their experience with others. And so this is just some of the people that we've treated that we think are just amazing, amazing survivors. And they survive their pancreas cancer, they give back. And it's really for these people that, you know, it's easy to wake up every day and feel excited about going to work. So, you know, um, hopefully you're making a difference. So over Christmas, I took my mom. So my mom has this bucket list of all these places she wants to go before she leaves this world. And one of them was Spain. So she really wanted to go to Spain. And so I took her to Spain, and I learned a lot about the culture there. And the national motto of Spain is plus ultra, which really comes from a saying that's non-plus ultra. So when you look at Spain, that is the Straits of Gibraltar, yeah? I was never really good at geography, so if I'm saying something wrong, please correct me. <laughs> so in the olden times, right, in antiquity, people thought the world was flat. They actually thought that if you passed the Straits of Gibraltar, there was nothing else there. That was like the end of the world. And so they had these pillars of Hercules there, and they put the inscription non plus ultra, meaning beyond here there is nothing more. Don't even try and go. Warning. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> of course, in 1492, Christopher Columbus took three ships, and they found the New World, and he brought back this incredible wealth from the New World. And actually, this was the era of the Spanish Renaissance. They brought so much wealth back from the New World that Spain became a national power. And they changed their motto to plus ultra, meaning there is always something more. There are no boundaries, and we just have to keep pushing forward. To quote one of my favorite people, Muhammad Ali, the impossible is only temporary. Things that we can do today, people said was impossible 100 years ago, 200 years ago. So I think that's how we like to think about pancreas cancer. That sounds like a little crazy, but we don't think that you know two years is enough. I'm gonna show you some data where we've done some clinical trials and we've really pushed that survival much further, but I think that's only the beginning. We have so much more work to do. What we realize with pancreas cancer is because there's only you know, 40 to 50,000 cases a year, and you know, we don't see 40 to 50,000 at freighter. We only see a small portion of that. We have to learn from every patient that we see. Everyone that comes through the door is an opportunity for us to learn a little bit more about the disease. So when patients come and they get diagnosed, we start their treatment, but we also ask them to participate in some research. And what that means is every time they get a scan, like a CT scan, so we can see what's going on inside, because remember we can't feel and we can't figure out what's going on. We have to use a CT scan or some kind of imaging to see it. We take some blood and we do some questionnaires so we can learn at every single time point, is this treatment working for this patient? If it's yes, why is it working? If it's no, how did we fail? How can we do better? So we meet people at the diagnosis and then we just continuously follow them until we can learn as much as we can. And our patients are so generous that they are happy to do that. You know, they're happy to kind of give back and they realize that there's some people who are gonna do great and some people that may not do so great, and they don't know where they are yet, but they're willing to kind of take the journey with us, which is really amazing. What we do with those specimens, we take blood samples from folks, and we just put that away in a freezer. We have a lot of collaborations with scientists across the United States that are looking at blood-based tests. We call them liquid biopsies to see how the cancer is doing. So what that means is right now, when someone gets treated for cancer, they get chemotherapy, and then 
they might get chemotherapy for two months or three months or four months and then they get a CT scan to see if it's working. You know, in 100 years people think that's crazy because we're giving basically a poison to try and kill this cancer and we're giving it for a long period of time without knowing even if it works, right? The scan is just to see if it works. Right now what we're trying to do is with the blood that we check, try and see if we can actually find a marker that will tell us early on if the treatment's working without us having to do a CT scan. So we can just in real time give the chemotherapy, see the response in the blood, and know we gotta switch the chemo or we gotta keep on with the chemo. Does that make sense? Yeah. The other things that we do is when people go to surgery and we get those tumors, those tumors are really precious because we don't see many cases and not everybody goes to surgery. So when we take those tumors, we actually try and grow them so that other scientists can study them. So sometimes we can grow that in a Petri dish, just put it in and put some growth factors in. And sometimes we put them in mice. These are special mice that we can grow the tumors in. So the tumors can grow up again, and then we can take those tumors out and study them. Oh yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, what if you're a patient and you don't have surgery, um, maybe endoscopy? Yep, so you can do them off of biopsies. It's much more challenging because then you have just a teeny tiny amount of tissue or sometimes even cells. So that's really challenging. So that gets into a whole nother thing. So when people are diagnosed and they go through surgery, we get a chunk of tissue. If they don't go through surgery, we often don't understand what happens to those folks because we basically have people who have early stage disease that we got a lot of tissue from. And then where there are people who had pretty aggressive disease that we never got tissue from. So we have what's called a rapid autopsy program. For patients who they know they're gonna die from their pancreas cancer, but they still wanna give back. And they say, you know, we actually call it fighting cancer after death. So they say, it doesn't matter what happens to my body after I'm dead. I know where I'm going, you know, spiritually, et cetera. But my body and my tumors can be used to help the next person. And so we do what's called a rapid autopsy. So if they live within about an hour of the medical college, we'll bring their remains back to the medical college and we'll explant their tumors from wherever they are in the body. And that way we can really study what happens to cancer that spreads. Because all of the tumors that we have in general are cancers that haven't spread because we took them out at surgery. But the rapid autopsy is an opportunity for us to learn about this different kind of disease that's a little bit more aggressive. Great question. And then the last thing that we have, what's called a high-risk screening clinic. I just want to emphasize this is another thing just to put in your ear. So people thought that pancreas cancer was not hereditary. You know, there's hereditary colon cancer, there's hereditary breast cancer, but pancreas cancer wasn't hereditary. So we didn't know what we were talking about. So now we know that there's actually a subset of pancreas cancer that is hereditary. It's about 10 to 15 percent. And how you know you're at risk is if you have two immediate family members, two first-degree family members, or three any-degree family members. So if you have three people in your family with pancreas cancer, that's not normal. Because the general population risk of pancreas cancer is about 1 to 1.5 percent for basically all of us here. So our chance of developing pancreas cancer is about 1 percent lifetime risk. But if you have two or three family members, your risk now is jumping up to 10 percent. And those individuals, we would actually recommend that they undergo high-risk screening. So that means that they would get an MRI every year just to look at their pancreas. 
try and detect if there's any changes in their pancreas, so we could try and detect a pancreas cancer early. Immediate family? So the two immediate family members, a mom and a dad, sister and a brother, daughter, son, that's immediate family, or three, any degree. It could be two immediate, it could be one immediate and two second cousins, or... One of the things when you look at the history of African-Americans, mm -hmm. maybe many times you can go back for a couple of generations, but many times our ancestors died in the 40s or 50s, so it's hard to know, you know, even in terms of just intergenerational yeah. Yeah, just having incomplete pedigrees, right? Incomplete knowledge of your family history, and that is challenging. So when patients are diagnosed with pancreas cancer now, it's actually standard that everybody gets genetic testing, everyone. And then if they find something, then all their family members, we call it cascade testing, so you keep going. The person who has cancer is everybody should be tested. Doesn't matter what stage or anything, everyone should get tested. And then depending on what they find there, their family members may be tested. The genetic testing, it's actually just a blood sample. Yep, and they test, right now the panels actually test not only for pancreas cancer, but a lot of other different cancers too. So it tests for, I think currently 270 genes are tested. So do you have to tell the doctor you want that test specific when you do your labs? So if you had pancreas cancer, it should just be done. But I would definitely ask your doctor to make sure it gets done. But it's, it's like a standard of care. It should be done. Yep. Something, in other words, if, if, if it is genetic in our family, two or three, it's something we would want to get done. Yeah. So it's like a mammogram. Yep. That's a really great question. So the question was, how do we know what kind of chemo to give? So I'll give you a little history about chemotherapy for pancreas cancer. Until 2010, there was only one drug available. So you can see for 30 years why people made no progress is because they only had one drug. That's it. So when that drug didn't work, you didn't have anything else. So in the last 10 years, there's been four different new kind of regimens approved for pancreas cancer. So we're in a really good time now being able to ask this question, what chemotherapy is going to be best for each person? So precision medicine for cancer, this is not just pancreas cancer, this is any cancer. This is kind of the future, what people think is the future. So when you think of a cancer, it's a cell in your body that has gone haywire. It just has decided to have a mind of its own. It's growing at its own pace. It's being kind of a rogue player. It's starting to push other people around, and it's a bad actor. But that cell is very unique to you. So my cancer is not going to be the same as your cancer or your cancer. Anybody, everybody's going to have their own cancer. And so it's a perfect question. Why would we give everybody the same chemotherapy? And that is the standard of care right now. So again, in 100 years, people would probably say, that's crazy. They would give like some kind of random chemotherapy, and then they wouldn't check for two months to see <coughs> if it was working. And it, it would seem like barbaric, I, probably in 100 years. But that's kind of our standard of care right now. So we did a clinical trial where we biopsied the tumor. For these are patients who had potentially operable pancreas cancer that we could take out. We biopsied it. We gave them chemotherapy based on the biopsy. And then we tried to see 
you know, based on the biopsy, if we could fit a chemotherapy to their tumor, if they could, more people could get to surgery than less. And so the average survival, the median survival now on that trial was 45 months, double what it is kind of historically. So that's kind of a good signal for us that, you know, maybe we should be thinking more about precision medicine, that maybe that we should be tailoring things a little bit better for patients. So next is just shock and awe. <laughs> this is my shock and awe, which is just to say we are so committed to improving the treatments for pancreas cancer that we try and get every patient on a clinical trial because oftentimes with pancreas cancer, the clinical trials are really where kind of the science is at and we're trying to bring the science quickly to the patient. So we have a lot of different clinical trials for different stages of disease and we really try and encourage patients to think about enrolling in a clinical trial. I have a question with um, being diagnosed with cancer and coming to find out you're getting treatments and ultimately they find out you didn't have the cancer. How does that occur? How yeah, so when I talk to folks, I always tell them the first step in getting treated is to make a diagnosis. That's number one. We have to know what we're treating. And a diagnosis for almost any cancer, except for one that I can think of, is a tissue biopsy. So if they do a tissue biopsy and the pathologist looks at it under the microscope and says, yep, those cells don't look normal, that looks like cancer, that's usually the diagnosis. It never hurts to get a second opinion. And in cancer, I would say it's almost really helpful to get a second opinion because it's such a life-changing diagnosis, right? You just want to make sure that everybody agrees, that there's no controversy over it. We shouldn't be giving chemo, we shouldn't be giving radiation if we don't know that it's cancer. There are some cases that you biopsy and it's cancer and you get treated and your tumor has such an incredible response and you can see that because you had something and it shrinks down and your tumor markers go down and they take it out and it's gone. So that's different, that's a complete response. How can you immediately get a second opinion? Why would they extend it six weeks before you can get another second opinion? So the important thing is to think about where you're getting that second opinion. So if you're going to get a second opinion, like if I go to my mom and I say, am I pretty? And she's going to say, yes, right? So my second opinion shouldn't be my grandma when I say, am I pretty? You have to go to like an independent source. Go to a, what's called a high volume center. This requires a little bit of research, right? Because not all places are equally great at certain areas. So like if we're talking about pancreas cancer, you can just ask your doctor, where should I get a second opinion? I'm interested in a second opinion. But most physicians understand that you'd want to get a second opinion and it doesn't bother us. You know, I mean, I think if my mom was diagnosed with pancreas cancer, I just want to make sure that there was, you know, no controversy. It's hard to make a plan when you don't know where you're starting from. So just to give you an idea, we're heading in a precision medicine realm in a much even deeper way. So we did this first clinical trial where we did biopsies and we did kind of simple profiling of the tumors, but we actually are partnering with the University of Virginia and they have a really great scientist there who basically has defined the molecular subtypes of pancreas cancer. So that takes a lot. It's, it's a lot of really advanced sequencing that she's done. And it takes a lot of tissue and it takes a lot of time and money and all these different things. What she's been able to do is distill all of that down to 16 genes. She knows the 16 essential things that we need to test for. 
and she can do it off of a small sample. So when we heard that, we said, let's get together and do a clinical trial. So what we're doing with that is we're going to do biopsies again. We're going to send it to Virginia. They're going to tell us it's this type of cancer or this type of cancer. And then going back to your question, certain types of cancer will respond better to one chemotherapy than the other. So now we're really starting to get even more kind of granular, looking at very, very deep sequencing and being able to predict what kind of chemotherapy will work. So that's kind of the next phase. Then I just want to end on talking about this thing that I've been thinking about, which is socioeconomic factors that impact healthcare. You know, as a young surgeon, I really focused on the outcome, that survival curve, that we could push that survival curve as far as we can get it, right? People are living four years, five years, six years. But as a maybe mid-career physician, what I realized is that it doesn't matter how good the treatment is if you can't get people through the door. What determines what treatment you receive, chemo or radiation? Yeah, so for pancreas cancer, Depending on the stage, let's say we're planning on going to surgery, we do both. We do chemotherapy. Remember that iceberg? So the chemotherapy is to treat below the water, the invisible stuff. And the radiation is to shrink what's above the water, thing that you can see. And then the surgery is just to take out the iceberg. So I always say there's a visible cancer that we can see, and then there's the invisible cancer. And ironically, it's the invisible cancer that is what is really life-threatening. You hear all the time people have a cancer, their surgeon takes it out. It's what's left over that we can't see that causes the trouble. What is the cause of pancreatic cancer? Is it the fluctuating symptoms of diabetes? No. So there's some genetic causes. 10 to 15% are just inherited genes that are abnormal and they cause cancer. In the rest of people, we actually don't really know. There's two things that we know are related to pancreas cancer. Having cysts in the pancreas, so these are fluid-filled lesions in the pancreas. So the pancreas back here is a solid organ, right? There's no fluid in it. But some people start to develop little cysts. So let me just say that if you have a cyst, it's not a big deal in other organs, like liver cysts, so super common. Kidney cysts, no big deal. We don't even like bat an eye. A cyst in the pancreas is something different. I tell people that a cyst in the pancreas is like a polyp in the colon. It's something that we got to watch. The small ones probably don't matter at all. If they start to grow or they get over a certain size, there's a very defined risk of that turning into cancer in the future. So what would be a symptom of a cyst in the pancreas? And there's no symptom. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. Yeah, that's why it's so hard. people go through chemo, does it make them weak? Yeah, in the future, if we could give a, a therapy that only attacked the cancer and not your body, that would be the ideal. But right now, the kinds of chemotherapy we give, they attack everything, but they attack the cancer a little bit more than the normal cells because the cancer cells are just revved up. They're a little bit overactive, and so when we give it, it affects the cancer cells more than the normal cells, but it affects both. Yeah. I would say my father, he was a drinker. He stopped, but by the time he stopped, he had a bleeding ulcer, mm -hmm. and then it went to pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there. I would say risk factors for pancreas cancer, uh -huh. the strongest one we know of actually is smoking. Okay. You'd think sometimes maybe alcohol, but number number one by far is smoking. Number two is actually alcohol. So when you drink alcohol, it's dehydrating, right? And it dehydrates your pancreas juices too. 
So the juices in your pancreas are made for one thing, it's just to digest things. So if they get kind of thick, they can sometimes turn into stones and you get a blockage in your pancreas and then the fluid can't get out and then basically you get pancreatitis. So the pancreas juices can't get out, they're just stuck in the pancreas and then they just start digesting the pancreas, which is very painful. But it also causes a lot of inflammation and there's a couple things that cause cancer everywhere. So chronic inflammation causes cancer. So if you have chronic pancreatitis, mm -hmm. that is a risk factor for pancreatic cancer. My question is, based on what you're telling us, with this being, with pancreatic cancer being high risk in African Americans, mm -hmm. it's not, my family is not genetic. Mm -hmm. But based on information and knowledge that we have now, would it be wise that all black Americans take that kind of a test? Mm -hmm. And if we do, would they cover that or is that out of pocket? Yeah, that's a great question. Just to unpack that a little bit, the question is, should all African Americans be tested for pancreatic cancer? Genetic testing, I'm assuming, yeah. So there's a couple issues here. First, the cancer is not that common, right? So we're already trying to improve our ability to detect it by doing high-risk screening, so we know families that have pancreas cancer. And I certainly families should be tested. But within just the African American community, the risk of pancreas cancer, although higher than other races, is not that high that everybody should get tested. And then it's not foolproof because if we test you, we're kind of blind and we're feeling our way through. We know there's a couple genes for sure are associated with pancreas cancer, but there's a lot of people that we test and we don't know what gene causes it. So you could have three family members come in with pancreas cancer. We test those family members and we don't find a gene. That doesn't mean that there's not a gene that's causing it. It just means that we don't know the name of that gene. That's the problem. Again, in a hundred years, people would be, oh, you know, what were these people doing back then? But there's only so much we know, and we know just a small amount about the genetic risks. So we can identify some for sure, but I would say that's why we have these guidelines. So you have two first degree or three any degree family members, because we test those people. Not all of them have a gene that's discovered, but it doesn't change our understanding that they're at high risk. It's a great question, though. So if the family is more high risk than diabetes, like my family, mm -hmm. is very high risk. You mean a lot of pancreas cancer in your family? No, we need to talk diabetes. afterwards. Oh, okay. And uh, we all have four people with pancreas. Four people with pancreas cancer? We need to talk afterwards. Yeah. I'm going to follow you to your car. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go home and knock on your door. Yeah. Uh, we need to talk. So diabetes itself is actually not a risk factor for pancreas cancer. The biggest risk factor is smoking, alcohol, chronic pancreatitis. Diabetes is down here. The diabetes thing that I was talking to you about is actually the surest sign of pancreas cancer, that when you have worsening diabetes and you're losing weight, I mean, that's pancreas cancer until proven otherwise. But diabetes in and of itself is not a risk factor for pancreas cancer because there's so many people in the United States that have diabetes. It's kind of confusing. Let me just finish with, I really feel that it doesn't matter how good sometimes we can get the therapies if we can't give it to people. And there's things that are outside of the hospital that prevent us from getting people to treatment. I've noticed that recently where, you know, it's just hard to get people to come into the clinic visit. They don't have transportation. There's all sorts of issues. 
One of my goals in the future is to try and really look at this better because I think we can't spend millions and millions of dollars of making therapies that nobody's going to have access to. So we have to improve the access to care. So one of the ways we've been thinking about looking at this and trying to identify high-risk people who need extra support to get through treatment, because let me just say, the treatment for pancreas cancer is a marathon. It's maybe an ultra-marathon. It's like three marathons all together. It takes a lot of family support. I mean, people have to be there for you. It takes a lot of economic support. You're off work. It's a lot. And it's a lot for someone who doesn't have a lot of support to go through. So I think it's important that we try and identify those individuals and try and get them that support. Because otherwise, you wouldn't expect anyone to be able to walk in off the street and then go through an ultra marathon by themselves. It's just unrealistic. And this is actually timely because the census is coming up. One of the things that people have developed is what's called an area deprivation index. What they've done is taken census data and basically they put that together mathematically and say what your area of deprivation is, meaning not a lot of resources, right? Not a lot of even infrastructure in the communities, areas of food poverty, etc. And so when you look at the United States, when you look at Wisconsin, it doesn't look so bad. But then when you look at Wisconsin close up, it's not so great, right? And even if you look at Milwaukee close up, also there's some problem areas here. And what they've done is they've unpacked this at a neighborhood level, not individual. We haven't gotten down to that point yet, but at a neighborhood level and just said, if we look at a certain zip code, we can tell roughly what the area of deprivation is here, how much need is needed here. And then what we're trying to do is say, okay, from our patients that we see from different zip codes, how successful are they in getting through all this therapy that we have planned for them? And then of the people who can't, why can't they? And what can we do to improve that? So that's that next step. We're working on better treatments for sure, but I think we're working on understanding better access as well. You're saying that cancer could be a long gone, I think, so would that person will be able to get disability to assist them while they go through that? Most people end up having some time off. We would love to see people return to their work, but this is at the time in their life where people are going through a transition anyway, heading towards retirement, etc. Some people just make that switch then. Yeah. Um, talk about the mental health, the spiritual health of an individual and it's interfacing with um, kind of cancer versus Yeah. It's a really good question, and I wish I actually knew more about it. I can tell you that recently, we are really lucky to recruit a psychologist, a cancer psychologist, and she's available to all of our patients, because I think we recognize that there's a lot that goes on with this diagnosis. And some people internalize it, and then some people deal with it really well. That's just, you know, individual to each person. But there is certainly some evidence to suggest that increased levels of stress are adversely correlated to survival. In fact, they've even done studies where they've given people what are called beta blockers. So these are medicines to help lower your heart rate, lower your adrenaline a little bit. And they're studying whether giving people beta blockers actually improves survival. And the reason why I'm asking yeah. is you're, you're into a, in a church. Yeah. And to make that connection between the spiritual and the, the social, mm -hmm. the physical, mm -hmm. I think is really important. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And I think it's probably something that we neglect to talk about even from the very beginning, to be honest, because I always think it's really important to think about your goals, even if we think this is a no-brainer, that this is really going to be easy to treat, because nothing is guaranteed. So it's always important to have that as your center, just to know this is what I would be okay with in my life, and this is not okay. Because sometimes we can take you down a road and little by little we get you off course. And then at the end you're wondering, how did I get here? This is not where I kind of envision things. So I think it's really important to have those conversations early. And to be honest, we don't do a good enough job of kind of reiterating that. So we heard this with the prayer this evening. Your body is amazing. It probably is fighting off cancer as we speak. It's just a balance. And it depends on how that balance is tipped and what's affecting it. So I think part of it is, yes, we're trying to get better treatments. In the future, we'd like to just teach your body how to fight the cancer. But in the meantime, I think it's just trying to find that balance. Well, thank you all so much. It was such a pleasure to be with you tonight. Oh, no, thank you. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison, co-produced by Brian Belmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.